0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, again, if you haven't done so, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We have been focusing for the last few sermons that I've done on The fact that a key, a normal part of the Christian life is that of suffering, of struggle. We started out by looking at Acts chapter 9 and the life of Saul, who later became the apostle Paul. When he was converted, he became a Christian. And immediately after that event, he is instructed and told by uh, the Lord himself, that he must learn how much he will suffer for the name of Christ. And out of that, I talked about the idea that in Christ, as a Christian, suffering for his namesake is part of the package. You are not saved so that you have no suffering, but in fact, a Christian is saved into suffering. It is just part of that life. The type of suffering that we looked at, though, there was specific. It was suffering because you are a Christian. Now, that level of suffering and the length of that suffering will differ, but every Christian will suffer because they are a Christian. We live in a world that's at enmity with the Christian because they're at enmity with Jesus himself. After that, the next sermon I did, I I dealt with the idea of what is the cause of all suffering. So we can we saw a specific side, suffering for the name of Christ, and then we came into just a basic understanding of why suffering even exists. Why do people die? Why do babies die? Why is there violence, riots? Why do I lie? Why do I have thoughts come into my mind unbidden? All of this reality we see Resulting in so much suffering, it can torment our souls. We can fight disease. And it's all due to sin, the dominance and the presence of this power called sin in the Bible that presses upon all of creation. And so all of creation groans under it, and we see it. I follow a a site on Instagram called Nature is Metal. Some of you do it as well. Um, I follow it because it it gives that testimony of the brokenness that sin brings into the world, how utterly brutal nature is. You're watching a a wildebeest, and it's being devoured while it's still alive. And you just see the futility of life and pain and the ache. It's brutal. Why? Because we live in a world... Whether you're a Christian or a pagan, it doesn't matter. Sin and death exist, and as a result, suffering is common. After that, we then looked at how we are to respond when we sin. We do wrong, we disobey, and we get punished for it. The consequences, the suffering because you have consequences in your life. You do uh, you do drugs and you melt your brain, and the consequences come upon you as a result of that. You drink to excess and you destroy your liver, or you lose your job and you end up homeless. All of these things are just consequences of bad, foolish, sinful behavior. You steal, and you're in prison. You mouth off, and you're beaten up. All of this is just simply the suffering that comes out of bad behavior, and the answer to the Christian is no sympathy. As you bear up under your suffering because you've done foolish things, the Bible does not offer you much in the way of sympathy. It just simply says, well, you should bear up under that. You should receive your consequences. There's no praise in the fact that you are faithfully enduring the punishment that you earned. So it says things like, if you don't eat work, then you don't eat. There's no sympathy. We don't come alongside and give you some extra food when you're wanting to be a bum. No. If you want to be a bum, then be a bum, but don't look for food. Well, today... We're turning our attention to another common aspect that's closely connected to this last one of just your suffering, the consequences of your actions. Here we're going to talk about suffering as a result of God's discipline in your life. When God himself begins to discipline you, do not assume that every time there's something that you do foolish, that, and you get the consequences that oh, all that God's disciplining, perhaps, but there are moments in your life, if you're a Christian, that you will be disciplined. And if you never have suffered at the hand of God as your father in the way of being disciplined, at the end of your life, if that is not true of you, he would say you are not a Christian. A true Christian gets disciplined because he is a child of God. Now, there to to endure and understand suffering requires you to understand a good theology. The better your theology, the understanding of how God and, and his creation operate, the better you understand how to live and breathe. If you have a solid understanding of God and a solid understanding of man, you will do much better. The weaker and more vague you understand God to be, then the less you will be able to understand suffering. You'll make God either this, you'll, make it, you'll say, well, God wants you happy and prosperous. That's not true, but you hear it all the time. Or God is uncaring and maybe even a little bit nasty. But we have to grasp that suffering is part of God's will. In fact, the entire story of redemption through Jesus Christ is one of suffering. The Bible is not shy about it. Over and over again, Jesus told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be arrested, beaten, and die. I must. It is necessary I do this. I will on the third day rise again. It is part of what I am here for. When you make God wanting you only to be happy or that somehow God is just a mean vindictive Uh, God, you've missed what the Bible actually says about God. Sin has entered the world. We are under the dominion of sin. The Bible says we're slaves to it. We're dead in it. We are slaves to our own desires. We're objects of God's wrath. We're sons and daughters of disobedience. And yet Christ, God in human flesh, Becomes our sin bearer. He comes to take our place and suffer. Suffer what was to be ours because of our sin. And then through his resurrection, he secures us our life. It's not something we earn, it's found in Christ. And he says, if you believe in this, if you rest in this, and you then order your life in light of that, you're forgiven. And then what follows is Christ says is you learn to obey. You don't obey so that you now can be accepted by God, but rather you accept what God has done on your behalf through Jesus Christ. And through that, you are now forgiven. Now that you're forgiven, he says, now I'm going to teach you how to obey. And that is part of what it means to be under God's discipline. So again, suffering is part of God's will. We have to understand that God, the Bible is not shy about it, so we ought not to be shy. And we may remember or or we may forget in the midst of our suffering as a Christian, again, I'm talking to a Christian here, that we feel very alone in those times, and yet we have to remember the promises of the word. That the Lord says he will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That the Spirit says that he prays on behalf of us with groanings too great to understand. You also must remember that mankind is considered weak and transitory. Not only is God mighty, but we are weak. We come and go. The power of sin in this age presses on us. And so the Bible says that uh, we, uh, man is born for trouble just like how sparks fly upward. It's just natural. All of us are born into trouble. We spend our whole life trying to avoid it, and yet it finds us over and over again. Half the time, it's because we created ourselves. Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes this, For what does a man get in all of his labor, in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind does not rest. This too, he says, is vanity. You can work your rear end off, you can do everything, but it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it breaks and fails and people cheat and people lie and you do it yourself and everything comes up grasping like oil in our hands. Suffering. And hardship then is part of the fallen age. What are some other ways then we might suffer? And so today what I want us to look at is this idea of suffering under the discipline of the Lord. It's a serious task, and I want you to attend your mind to it. Let me start my clock that I forgot to start so that I don't cause you to sin because I go on and on. All right. So with that in mind, let's talk about the hand of God's discipline, God's discipline on us, in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, starting in verse one, we have this context of a great cloud of witnesses that surround us. He says, "In light of that, do this." Well, what's the great cloud of witnesses? Well, it's talking about chapter 11. We won't spend the time there, but understand that chapter 11 is all about by faith, what it looks like to live by faith. You'll see that over and over again, and you can summarize the chapter in this way, that you are to believe that God, first of all, exists, and second, that he rewards those who seek him. If you believe God is true and you're going to, and you believe that God will reward you as you pursue him and seek him, then that will manifest itself in obedience. And so Abraham is called by God to go from the land he knows to a land he doesn't know and he obeys. Noah is told that that a coming flood will destroy the world. You are to build the ark and you will be saved. He believes God and therefore he builds the ark and on and on and on the scripture talks about this. But along with that, in verse chapter 10 to 12, if you were to uh, read through that, you'll notice a word popping up over and over again, various ways, but it will say in one way or another, endure, endure. Why? Because the people he is writing to in this, passage, in this book, they are men and women who are abandoning Christ. They are abandoning Jesus and going back to other ways, thinking that those other ways are just as good. And he says, if you do that, nothing remains for you. So endure, stay faithful. So in light of that, he says, we look at these men and women of faith in chapter 11, and see how God did reward them. In light of that, then, in verses 12, 1, and I mean, chapter 12, 1 through 3, he says we need to keep the ultimate focus of our faith on Christ. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance a race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has, and there's that word, endured with such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. He wants us to remember Christ. And so he frames us in the idea that the Christian life is one of a race. And he gives some details of this. We are to remember that we run a race. Many others went first in. We have a great cloud of witnesses that have finished the race. Now you go finish the race. Get in the race and stay with it. God will reward you. Just continue to believe in him and then run. We are to strip away, he says, all that entangles us. And then he breaks it into two categories, that which is sin and that which is just entanglements. The sin is sin. It's things the Bible commands you to do or not to do, and that is where our sin comes in. But our entanglements are all of those other things that are not overtly wrong, but they weigh us down and they trip us up. They they entangle us. And the way the Lord will deal with that oftentimes is when he disciplines you. When the Lord takes hold of you and all of a sudden your sin is seen and all of those things that trap you and entangle you, you realize, I just need to put them aside. I just need to stop. Nothing good is coming from this. It's not that it's wrong. It's just not good. And so then instead, run with a long view in mind. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's not a sprint. It's a long distance. And the only way you'll ever finish it, beloved, is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Why? He says, because he is the author of our faith and the finisher or perfecter. He will bring your faith to its completion, but he is the source and the beginning point of your faith. So keep your eye on Jesus. Why do you want to keep your eye on Jesus? Well, not only is he the author and the finisher, But consider him, verse 3, he endured the hostility of sinners against himself, but he also had the joy set before him, so he endured the cross. He said Christ knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he would suffer, but that wasn't what he focused on. His focus was on what was the other side of that, and on the other side of that was the taking back up of the fullness of his glory and the sitting at the right hand of his father and so it kept impressing the joy that's in your mind if you're a faithful christian is the remembering that even in the midst of your suffering on the other side of it comes life eternal and so you run the idea then is if you keep jesus faithfulness And endurance at the top of your mind. If you remember how Jesus endured with the joy set before him, he says, if that's forefront and that's the focus on your mind, then you will not fail in this race. You will endure. Here's what you do, too often perhaps. You spend most of your life worrying about your own faithfulness, how good you're doing, how well you're running what you're accomplishing, what you're putting away, how well your sin is being put away, and how well you're growing in the spiritual discipline. It's all about you, and then you get beat up. You either get to be an arrogant person, or you beat yourself up because you know you're not doing like you ought to. Instead, you're to not consider your faithfulness. He says, start focusing on Christ's faithfulness. Because he's the one who began you and he will finish you. So hold on to Christ. Yes, you're not always faithful. But Christ was eternally faithful and perfectly faithful. Beloved, a simple, uh, a simple counsel to you is focus always will equal direction. Whatever you focus on, you'll, you'll go toward. Focus on you and your failings and you'll fail more. Focus on Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf and you will do well. When as an officer, one of the things they taught you is that when you pulled over at at nighttime, you pulled over anybody on the side of the road, that you would turn off the, we called them the ambers. There there were the yellow lights on the back of the light bar of the police car. And they were supposed to be on so that people would be warned that you're over there and just to avoid you. But what they found is that, in fact, when you're drunk, you see those amber lights and you focus on the amber lights and instead of avoiding them, you drive right into it. And so you end up running right into the police car and thus injuring or killing both the individual you pulled over and yourself. And so the first thing you were taught to do at nighttime was when you pulled a car over is that you cut, killed the lights. The only thing you had was your spotlights. Why? Because the focus always ultimately led to the direction in which you go. Beloved, that's you. You're that drunk. You fixate on you. You focus on you, and you will always go the wrong way, but you must focus on Christ. Well, from there... In verses four through 13, the writer begins to move from the broad image of running a race. That's kind of the big picture. Now he's going to get into the methods, the mess, methods that God uses. To build your endurance. So you say, well, I'm not very strong. I'm not, I don't have endurance. I'm not good at this. Yes, God knows that. He knows what you are. That's why Christ died in your place. Cause if you died in your place, you would have failed. But God sent forth his son to be your sin bearer. And now you say, well, yeah, but I'm still so weak. And he says, okay, that's fine. Let me teach you endurance. I will teach you to endure. How? Well, in verse 4, notice what he says. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So for those who are talking about how tired they are, how hard their lives are here in this book, perhaps that's one of you that you're talking about, oh, He just never seems to let up on me. I'm always under his frown. I'm always in trouble. I'm this, I'm that. Things are very hard. What the writer of Hebrews says is, oh, come on now. You have not even shed one drop of blood in your fight against your sin. You act like you're dying here, but there's no blood going on. Let's get a proper perspective of it. Notice where he puts the emphasis. It's not on the enduring of insults or hardships. He's not saying, I'm going to teach you endurance by, by having you suck it up and endure the insults, the, the sufferings, the mockings, the hardships. No, everyone has that. He says, the way you're going to learn endurance is by fighting against sin. That's where the real battle is. It's not your suffering that's the issue. It's the sin that remains that's the issue. And not just your own sin, but the, even though that's a major part of most of our suffering is our own folly, but he, says, he would say also sin done against you. Any kind of sin, and you're striving against it, fighting against it, or not, as you learn properly to respond to sins done to you, you begin to endure. It's a hard lesson, though, for so many to learn. But bottom line, let me make this as clear as I can. He gives you little sympathy. You're sitting there, and you're now enduring. You're running the race, and you got sin that trips you up. And you're like, oh, stupid sin, and you kick the sin. He's like, well, why don't you put that sin away? Well, it's so hard. Okay, then don't put the sin away, but it's going to keep tripping you up. Have you ever watched a child put on adult shoes and then try to walk around the house and they keep falling down and then they get mad because they fall down and they bang their body, their head against the wall and you say, hey, dummy, take the shoes off. No, I want to wear my daddy's shoes. Okay, then don't take them off. Just don't complain when you bump your head that's what really is going on. You're living your life, you're suffering. So often it's because of things that you've done to yourself, the sin or, or just choices that entangle you. And then you start to think, oh, life is so hard. And, and he says, look, you haven't even suffered yet to the point of shedding of blood. You're fine. You can almost hear just a father talking to his kid, right? You'll live. Get up. Yeah, you understand, my granddaughter, she's heard this from her grandfather. You're not going to die, shush. Or my favorite one is, life is hard, and then you die. So be quiet and get up. The complaints about enduring as a believer flow from a common source. Well, what is it? Look at verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as my as sons, the problem with most of us is that we don't learn endurance because we forget. It's forgetfulness. Forgetting and remembering are actually two things which the Bible talks much of. I would commend you to do a search on those and study how the Bible treats them. What do you forget? And what does God forget? And what do, are we to remember? And what does God Remember? In Deuteronomy, we find God telling Israel this. He says, do not forget Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. Yahweh, the name of God. He says, beware that you don't forget Yahweh by not keeping his commandments. How do you forget Yahweh? By just stop obeying him. In fact, listen to what Deuteronomy 8 says about Israel. This is what God is telling Israel what will happen. And what he's saying to them is, I'm telling you not to forget me, but guess what? You will forget me. And you ask me, you listen to this and you ask yourself whether it might not be true that you have forgotten in ways, God, because you're going to be found in these verses, all of America is. He says, when, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, in other words, when life is comfortable and when life is good, then, he says, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the houses of slavery. So much danger and comfort and wealth because they help you forget to trust in God and your trust begins to shift from God to these other things and God moves into the background. And then what God does is he disciplines you and moves back into the foreground. And so in verses five through six, what he does is he quotes two Proverbs and by doing that, he shows them what they had forgotten. They are Proverbs, and so they're simple parallelisms. And if you understand how an, a parallelism in the Bible is used, it's very easy to interpret them. The first and the second line here in the, both of these Proverbs, they go one after another in the book of Proverbs. They, they basically take both lines and summarize them, and that's the point of the proverb. The first, he says, is simply the admonition to not reject God's discipline. So he says, my son, do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. In other words, some raise those two up together, and he says, don't reject us you do it one way by treating it lightly, rolling the eyes. We've all done that to our parents, and we've all seen it done to us if you are a parent. Where a child, you warn them, and they treat it very lightly. They don't really care. They think they can get by with it. He says, don't do that. When you see his discipline and you think it means nothing, and you move on with your life, you make things very hard for yourself. But the other side is true as well, where you faint and you act as if you're dying, that everything is against you and you're worn out and you're giving up. It's making that discipline worse than it really is and trying to become a victim rather than one just simply being disciplined. He says, don't do either one of them. Instead, regard Take seriously and endure God's discipline. The second proverb gives the rationale behind the first. He says, for those whom the Lord loves, what? He disciplines. And he flogs or scourges every son whom he receives. The essence of the discipline, he says, is for good. You're good. God loves you. As his child, and therefore he disciplines you. So when you regard it lightly and you do not take seriously God's discipline in your life, if you act like you're dying because he's so mean to you, all you really are doing, he says, is you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God because you reject his discipline. You either don't care or you act like it's worse than it really is you reject that God loves you and therefore he disciplines you the reason he says that you are disciplined is because he's welcomed you he's received you into his household remember that give it some thought because this is where God as sovereign God takes you the rebel the enemy the one dead in his sins the one who is helpless and can do nothing good he takes you the rebel and changes you in such a way that he adopts you now into his family. Metaphorically speaking, then, the very hand of God that strikes you to discipline you does so because he first welcomed you. He pulled you into his embrace. He says, you are my son, you are my daughter. And out of that relationship, now he will turn his attention and begin to discipline you. Do not miss the severity of what that discipline can look like. It says he flogs or scourges every child whom he receives. What does that mean? It's the same term used in, in, uh, of Christ when he is whipped and the flesh is torn from him. There are times where you'll get a, a simple tap. We all have done that with our kids um, where we, we kind of pop them one very lightly. It doesn't even hurt. It's just kind of jolt them and say, hey, pay attention, Sit still. You'll live. You're not going to die. And that's all it is. But there's other times where it hurts. And you'll be shocked, beloved, some of you, at how much God will do to bring you under his discipline. There are times where your whole life will come to a screeching halt. You will find yourselves destroyed in ways you never thought. Now, I'm not talking to the non-Christian. I'm talking to the one who first understands and believes the gospel. The hand of the Lord upon your life as a child of God can be very, very painful. Keep that in mind and you will do well. Is it just by way of parenting for you as a mom or a dad maybe, this idea of how God treats his children is so different than the current trend of what's called gentle parenting. You may have heard it. It's horrid. It sounds good, but it's horrid. But it's also the way God parents his children and what we're to, how we are to parent our children is not one of domination and abuse. It's not either one of those. It's this gracious, faithful, loving reproof and discipline when it's needed. This is a kind of discipline that the Lord will give to you because he loves you. It flows out of love. It's not flowing out of he's annoyed with you. It's not because he's tired of you or he's selfish and he wants to be left alone. So he smacks you and says, go away. This is a love that comes because you are loved, that you've been welcomed. And now that you've been welcomed into his household, you're being trained to reflect your father in heaven. So divine discipline is part of actually belonging to the family of God. Now, in verses 7 through 11, he makes that very explicit. In 7 and 8, he shows why it's good and necessary to embrace the discipline of the Lord. He says, it is for discipline that you, what? Endure. There's that word again. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and you're not sons. Why do you endure? Why? Why are you to endure? Beloved, only a true Christian will endure it all the way to the end. But why? But why will you endure? And why is it that only a true Christian will endure the discipline of the Lord to the end? Because you will be able to see that it's because you're his child. You will see that he's dealing with you as a son or a daughter. No true father refuses to discipline a son, most certainly not God himself. I remember a time, will be to my eternal shame, I was just full of folly. And I was, back when I was around 18, 19, just doing stupid things. You'd think after having hit a car head on, losing a leg and all of that stuff, I'd be a wise man, but I was still full of folly. And a—I was, was with a friend, not truly a friend, but a friend, and a couple of girls, and we were all just being stupid, nothing horrible, just stupid. And I was going to try to uh, stay out a lot later, and I called my, my mom and dad just to let them know because I was in another city. My dad said No. He's. like, I want you to come home. You're already late. Get your rear end home. And I was so angry about that. And I was like, man, he, there he is robbing me of my pleasure, robbing me. I'm an adult. Why can't he just blah, 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 all the stupid things you say? And I remember the young lady that, one of the young ladies that we were with, she looked at me, and I'll, ne- I'll just I'll never forget it. She said with longing, I wish my dad would treat me like that. She had an abusive, evil father. You would think she would take that kind of a statement and say, Yes, you, you ought to know my dad. She actually yearned for a father who cared enough to discipline. Isn't that shocking? I'll never forget it. I was so humbled. It was yet one more pop against the head by my Lord teaching me. Divine discipline is because you belong to his family. To be, to be a person who does not experience God's discipline in your life is simply a person who ought to consider whether or not they are even saved. When discipline comes, it will hurt, but you should embrace it for it's evidence of his love for you. God is not content to leave you as you are. He always will work to bring you into conformity. And so when you come into my office and you're, and you're under his discipline because of choices made and, and uh, paths that you are plowing into your life that you're walking down repeatedly and the Lord now has taken a hold of you, you come to me and you're, and you're angry or hurt or frustrated, you won't get sympathy. I'm just going to point you to the fact that God loves you. You should be encouraged that he has taken you by the scruff of your neck and he's whipping you soundly. And instead, why don't you stop feeling sorry for yourself and start thinking about what it looks like to repent? In verses 9 and 10, then, he shows us the right attitude to have in the midst of it. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share in his holiness. This is a stunning rebuke to our current culture. The reason is that the appropriate attitude when you're disciplined is not to fight back or stiffen your neck, but respect the one who disciplines you. Younger people here, do you respect your parents for the fact that they they, they punish you because you do stupid things? Or are you counting the days that you can get out of the house? I remember punching my pillow when I got sent to my room after uh, I first got spanked. And then dad would say, you can go spend the rest of the afternoon in your room. And you can think about, well, I never thought about it. All I thought about was the great injustice of my father. Punching the pillow. Oh, you and I have kids. <laughs> my poor kids. <laughs> Do you respect? Do you respect them? Our earthly fathers, he says, discipline us, and we respect them. You know that you deserve it, and if you don't know that you deserve it, then you need to really stop and think about how dumb you really are because most of the time you deserve exactly what you're doing. But the argument is from lesser to greater. If we respect our fathers on earth for doing that, how much more should we honor, respect our heavenly father? it's also worth noting in this passage, I use this with parenting, is that fathers do the discipline as seems best to them. So let me talk to some of you who are still under your father's uh, care, or if you don't have a father with you, uh, your mother's care, it doesn't matter. Let me just tell it to you how it really is, and they can disagree with me, but I'll tell them that they're not right. Let me give you the deep, dark secret to your parents, okay? They have no idea what they're doing. They're trying. They're trying. They're getting better. But if you're the oldest in the home, they are guessing every single day. Every day comes a new thing. Every day the oldest goes into a new season of his life, and now they got to figure it all out again. Well, it was pretty easy when they're babies. Now they're toddlers. Now they're children. Now they're early adolescence. Now they're in their teen years. Now they're getting ready to leave the home. And every single step, they're guessing. They don't know. They got ideas. And if they had good parents themselves, they have a well to dig in and uh, draw from. But, but most of the time, what they're doing is what they think is best. It's not always the best. And every one of you who then judges your mom and your dad for what they are trying to do, and you say, well, they're, they're so bad, you don't get it. You're going to be a mom and dad one day, and you're going to be coming into my office just like they came into my office and say, we don't know what to do. Because it's hard, and you're just guessing. But here's what the difference is. The father disciplines as he seems best, but God does what is always best. God does so only for good. There's no guesswork. He's not like you or I. And mom and dad, just remember that, that you are guessing more than you want to admit. So have a measure of humility, but our father in heaven never guesses. He desires you and I to share in his holiness and so he disciplines. So look at verse 11. He shows the fruit of it. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, but to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So how do we respond? What will help us to be found faithful and not regard it lightly? How? Well, first of all, when you're under God's discipline, accept the fact that it hurts, not bring surgery here, right? It's not designed to be fun. It's not supposed to bring you joy. It's supposed to hurt. The common error I see in parents is that they hate discipline because it hurts them to see the tears of their little one. And so they are reluctant to discipline. That's terribly short-sighted. Of course they're going to cry. Of course it hurts. It's supposed to. You're disciplining them. Later you bear the terrible fruit in the life of your children because you did not do that. Discipline is designed to be sorrowful. And when you're under the discipline of your heavenly father, you are going to hurt, you're going to weep. There's no human that is tough enough in this room who can bear up under the hand of The father, you think you're tougher than him. Every one of us perhaps has heard the story of some kid. Maybe you were that kid that when you got spanked by your dad, you never cried. You weren't going to give him the satisfaction of showing that you were sad, that you hurt. You are going to tough it out. You'll stiffen your neck. You're going to be that guy. Trust me, when God takes hold of you as his child, you will feel it. You will feel it. Most of you know the story, but it was so formative in my life. Me on my motorcycles on my way to go and actively rebel against what my father told me not to do. And I had gotten by with it time after time after time. So I began to think that God does not see. And it was on that fateful day that the car pulled it right in front of me. I hit him head on. And when I saw my leg fall, Without a second thought, I knew. I knew that I was under his discipline. And all of my braggery, all of my thought of toughness and ability and wisdom and cleverness went out the window. I was literally lying in pieces. And it will happen to you if you stiffen. Why does he do it, though? Verse 11, it says, because it's training you. When you learn to endure, it's not going to happen during the discipline, but afterward, you'll see the fruit. But he says, there's no shortcut. You have to learn to endure it. You push it away, ignore the discipline, talk about it, but not attend your heart to it, and you'll have to do it again. I've watched people do this over and over again. It's like, you're not getting it you get your you you wreck your car because you wanna act stupid. Okay, fine. So now you get into debt to get the car fixed and then you wreck it again or you get a ticket and then you start having more insurance and things just start getting harder and harder and at some point you're either going to learn to drive like a normal individual or you'll just lose your ticket or you're going to injure yourself or worse. And as God disciplines you, you can fight it and then just keep repeating it, repeating it. Or you can learn it, endure it, accept the fact it hurts. And when you come out the other end, you'll see the fruit is that of righteousness. Things begin to grow. Then in verses 12 and 13, he, he talks to the congregation, the church, the ones who see the others who are under the discipline, and you will, all of you will see this at some point in your life. What do you do? Well, verses 12 and 13 says this. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Well, you gather around the one who's under the discipline. You encourage him. You don't give them sympathy. That's not the same thing. I can't tell you how many times, just with my own little grandchildren, who I adore, that I walk outside and I see little Juju, Juliet, crying and looking like death warmed over, and you look out, my compassion, I'm actually a nice guy, I'm, that shocks people, but I actually love my little grandchildren, and I see my little Juju crying, and I start to walk toward him. and then my back guy looks at me and says, no. She's crying because she just got disciplined. You know what? My whole demeanor changes. I look at her, and I'm like, well, then I don't feel sorry for you, girl. Obey mommy next time. Ooh, and then she's crying more because she was thinking maybe Papa will hold her and take, make her feel better. No, 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 I'm not making you feel better. You're under the discipline of your, uh, your parents, so you bear up under that. But that doesn't mean you hate them. It doesn't mean you reject them. You will then instruct them and and help them. You'll create a path in which they can walk. Maybe they've gotten themselves so deeply into debt, now the Lord is bringing all that down upon them. And you say, would you like to learn how to handle your money? I can help you. I can't pay off your debt. I refuse to do that, but I can help you and see if they can learn. It's, it's like a grandmother or grandfather sitting with a sad and discouraged grandchild who's being disciplined. You don't give them the sympathy, right? But you do show them kindness. You speak into their hearts. You let them know, well, they're still loved. But you still admonish them as only a grandma or grandpa can do. Don't lose heart. Your daddy disciplined you because he loves you, and you need to obey. Learn. That's what we do to those who are in the. Well, that's the key passage. I want to take you to two others, though. Go to First Corinthians chapter eleven, and I want to, you to see that these. This is not just one place in the Bible. It's replete as you open your eyes to these things. So let me show you another one. We actually dealt with this in our Lord's supper. We do it every week. First Corinthians eleven. And we'll look at verses 26 to 32, but let me give you context. I want you to notice in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul starts out with a word of praise. He says, now I praise you because you remember me and everything. So he starts out with this word of praise. Why? Because they're holding on to certain traditions that he had taught them. He and the other apostles had instructed them. Remember, the Bible wasn't, the New Testament wasn't written at this time. This is literally a letter he wrote to them that is part of the Bible. So this is the first time they're hearing it. But they had been delivered much instruction, and that's what's meant by tradition. And so he's praising them. I'm thankful to see that you're doing this. However, there are still some problems of working out those details, and now he's going to address that. And one of the things he does, this chapter breaks into two sections, and first half is all about these head coverings for women. And I won't go to get into it, I've actually preached a sermon on that. Um, that's not the goal today, we would just go down the rabbit hole. But bottom line, there's, he says, as Christians, there's a proper comportment for a woman and a man in the, as they gather together, and you need to understand that. And he gets into a whole issue of these head coverings. Then in verses 17 to 18, he moves from the head coverings to the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate, and we do it every single week. Notice that now... There is no word of praise. So he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. So I praise you up there. Now I'm not praising you. No word of praise. And the reason has to do with how they love one another and how they are promoting unity in the church. So there's a play on words in verse 17 and 18. Follow along and see if you can see it. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, that's the key word, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that what? Divisions exist among you. So are you together or divided? Which one is it? That's his point. You keep coming together, but you're not together. I can say that of this body right here. You guys have gathered together, but did you come together? Or are divisions among you? We all know what that's like. We see it. We see it in family gatherings. A family gathers, but they're not together, right? Because they hate each other and there's fighting and this and that. And he's like, I will not praise you for this. You gather together. That's good, but you don't do it the right way. So in fact, divisions are among you. What is the division? Well, it's very simple. They're not theological problems, these divisions. They're relational. It's not about doctrine. It's about practice. And the division is between the wealthy and comfortable and the poor. The wealthy, uh, when they would gather together to uh, worship on a Sunday, they would uh, share, in Corinth, they would share a meal together. Everyone would bring food, and there would be food and drink, wine and whatnot, and they would all (coughs) have a church service, but they would also gather to just fellowship, encourage each other, and eat and drink. Well, if you don't have a job and you're wealthy and comfortable, you can come early and you get all the good stuff. Everything's hot, everything's tasty, and you can drink and eat to your heart's content. In fact, these people were doing it to the point they, by the time the poor got there, they were drunk. Now, if you've ever been to a potluck and you were stupid enough to stay upstairs and talk, and not get in line. You know what I'm talking about. At the end of a potluck, you're at the back of the line, and all you're doing is with a fork, kind of like chipping off the crusties from casserole dishes, because that's all that's left. And you're like, well, I guess this will be my food, and you can't wait until you can go home just so you can get some real food. Well, that's what was happening with the poor. The wealthy were eating and getting drunk and filling their guts. The poor did not have that, yet it was the very poor who needed the food and the drink. They needed that rest and that relaxation. And they get in there later. And instead of sorrow and, and caring for the poor, it is, huh well, next time show up earlier. Well, they can't. They're, they're slaves. They're not released by their masters yet. And so he says in verse 22, look at the words he used. He's like, for do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. He is angry. He's like, look, you guys who have money and you're able to bring all the food, because you can hear it. Well, we're the ones bringing the food. The poor never bring the food. Well, they got nothing. They're poor. That's what means. You're wealthy. He's like, so let me tell you, what's the trick for not overeating when the church is going to gather? So we have celebration service. We're going to have a lot of good food. We want to make sure that everyone has the food, right? So what does Paul admonish each one of you to do so that you're able to share with those who might have need? He says, go eat first. Eat at your home and just fill your stomach up. That way, when you come to church, you're not tempted to say, oh, I'm so hungry because I've been waiting for this big feast that I will overeat and rob the poor. It's very simple stuff. He gives them a reminder then of what is happening when they take the Lord's Supper. He says, I will not praise you, for I receive from the Lord, which I delivered to you, On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We literally did this just a short time ago. But notice verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes that word, that phrase, the death of the Lord, is in the emphasis. In, in, it's called the emphatic position in the Greek. It's actually the emphasis. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, the death of the Lord is what you proclaim. It's a declaration of the Lord's death. They are not to be thinking about the food or drink. That's what they're thinking about. They're to be remembering the death of the one who brought them salvation. And somehow instead, they've turned it into drunken gluttony. So he gives them a very strong warning in verse 27. What is meant by an unworthy manner? He says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord what is this? There's all kinds of ideas, but it's very simple. It's treating the Lord's Supper more like a social event than a recognition of what it represents. It's, it's all about their own appetites and not the care and the love of the whole church, not making room for the, the poor, the needy who are believers. And when they do that, they despise Christ's death. Why? Because Christ died for those poor. He reconciled them to himself. They are his children. They should be welcomed to the table. And the big kids, think about this as older children and younger children, the big kids should be looking out for the little ones. Well, the rich should be looking out for the poor and making certain they're fed. But then verses 28 and 29, he says, a man must test himself in doing so. He is to eat of the bread, drink of the cup, because how you eat and drink Will bring judgment. When you do this wrongly, you invite God's judgment, His discipline. So, what's that look like? Well, verse thirty. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you sleep. Weakens. Uh, the word "many" is scary because it means that many in the literally that many in the church at Corinth were sick and weak, not just physically sick, mentally sick. You, 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 full of depression, full of anxiety, full of. Uh, fear, whatever it might be. Your, your body is weakened and constantly afflicted in this or that. And he says, you know why? Because you keep taking the Lord's Supper the wrong way. And so you have no peace of mind and you have no peace of body. He's like, you're just a mess. Why don't you just take it the right way? Why don't you start looking at the others and showing them love and concern? And then he says, and a number of you sleep. That's a euphemism for death reserved only for Christians. That you die, you go into the presence of the Lord, but your body is at rest. That's why it says rest in peace. So many are sick and some of you are even dead now. Now you know that when this was read, people are like, gee, I wonder if that's why Edna died. Instead of thinking about it for themselves, but think about it. Think about the Christians and especially ones who die suddenly. Maybe you think God doesn't do this still? God literally slays somebody who stubbornly holds on to their social standing rather than caring for those who have need. Now, we could talk so much, but we don't have time on how churches function today in America, the marketing to a specific demographic. We're only going for the the ages of 30 to 50, and they live in this type of neighborhood and look this way. The method of manipulation, the entertainment to keep a church growing, the lack of fear of God, a lack of sobriety in worship. Now, time doesn't permit us, but you should let your mind go on those things. Just in light of this passage, how serious God takes worship. Let me go to one last passage, and then we'll close it all up very, very shortly. Revelation, so the very last book of the Bible, chapter 3. It's the church of Laodicea, the one that everyone mocks for good reason. They think there's all that, but they're really just a mess. And Jesus is speaking to them. It's a church literally close to destruction and, in fact, was destroyed. Mostly unregenerate, unsaved, professing Christians are there. And he says that in verse 17, well, verse 16, they're rich and comfortable. He says, because you say, in verse forgive me, for, in, in verse 17, you say, I'm rich, become wealthy. I don't need anything. But then Jesus says, but you do not know that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. They think they're fine. God says, you're not fine. And so he says, I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. White garments so you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness will be not manifest. salve to appoint your eyes so that you may see. Why is he doing that? Why is he rebuking him? Why is he saying, you think you're so good, but you're actually a mess? It's because he loves his church. Here's as messed up of a church as you can be. It's lost its way. And though many of the people have given up on Jesus Christ, Christ has not given up on the church. There's great mercy, actually, in this rebuke. He hasn't just ignored them. Instead, he rebukes them and points them to the way of salvation. And the result is reproof and discipline. What's the goal behind it? Repentance. He says, therefore, in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore, be zealous and repent. When you discipline, the goal is never to remove the person, but to remove the sin. It's not merely to get a pound of flesh off them because you're angry with them. It's to save a soul. Will some fall away? Yes, always some will fall away. But the true believer will become zealous and repent. And that's actually what's meant in that famous verse in verse twenty Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him, and he with me. We hear it all the time. God, Jesus is knocking on your heart and he wants to save you. Will you open your heart and let him in? That's not what it's about. Do you know what the knocking of your heart is here in this context? It's God's discipline. God is disciplining you, and that's him knocking on your heart, meaning he's trying to get your attention. And if you repent, you will have fellowship with him. If you don't repent, you'll continue to get knocked. Let me sum this all up. You cannot ever ignore the possibility of discipline when you have trials, especially sickness. Never underestimate that it could be God's discipline. It may not be, but look at your heart. Look at your life. A humble heart will always slow down and think about that. But you also don't want to become paralyzed by it. If you are certain that you are being disciplined, well, the answer then is bear up under it with humility, And wait for the time that the Lord raises you up. He will. If you're under his discipline, it's because he loves you and there's an end to it. So just bear up under it, hold on, and you'll be fine, and you'll come out better for it. But if after careful introspection and you seek godly counsel, not just counsel, but you seek godly counsel, you ultimately say, I don't think this is discipline from the Lord. Well, then it's just simple, good old-fashioned suffering. Or trials, And that's what we'll look at the next time we come together. We'll look at just the nature of the trial in general, and then we'll close all of this up. Let's pray. So Father, a hard subject to talk about because all of us are prone to sin and therefore our opportunity for suffering because of your discipline, but teach us to have eyes to see. For those here who do not know Jesus Christ, that they would understand that There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, that they remember that there is no salvation aside from Christ. We would be humble. We'd understand that you are at work in our lives in ways that we don't even always understand. Strengthen those who are weak and encourage those who are strong to continue to strengthen others. We ask in your son's name, amen.